Ladies and gentlemen, it's the end of a long day. I look at the program of what you had presented today, and I wish that I could have spent the whole of the day with you. But having started the morning with you, it's good to come to the end of the day. And for an event that we are glad to be jointly sponsoring once again between the Middle East Center and the Maison Francaise, to come to the keynote address by Professor Ziad Majid from the American University of Paris. Ziad Majid is a political scientist whose long engagement with Middle Eastern studies has most frequently been written in French. One thinks of his Syrie, La Révolution Orpheline, as a most recent example. He also is a regular blogger, ziadmajid.blogspot in Arabic, and Vendredi Arabe blogspot in French and in English. Professor in the University of Paris, Dr. Majid will tonight be speaking to us on war crimes, crimes against humanity, and territorial fragmentation. Are peace and reconstruction possible in Syria? Ziad, I leave you to answer your own question. Thank you so much for, for the presentation. I would like to start by thanking the uh, Middle East Center and uh, La Maison Française uh, for organizing this uh, excellent event. And I thank uh, Mathieu Simino for uh, his invitation. Uh, I'm pleased and honored to be here. And I'll try to be brief so that we can discuss and we can have comments, questions. And uh, to avoid repeating what was said during the day, I know that some of you were not there, so I can allow myself some repetitions, but uh, not to go through uh, what we have been discussing uh, since this morning. So the idea of this uh, presentation is uh, related a little bit to what you said, uh, Mathieu, during this morning, that part of our relation to Syria is not only an academic relation, it is also uh, a citizen uh, relation uh, out of a citizen uh, involvement or engagement. Uh, we're just five hours away from a massacre uh, that have been taking place since 2011 uh, with lots of uh, sometimes complicity or with the international system being paralyzed, incapable of managing the crisis or at least of finding some uh, ideas for uh, solutions. Uh, we keep hearing that Syria is so complicated that the Middle East is anyway used to violence that as if genetically people there might be uh, like they're born to kill and be killed. So we hear lots of arguments about Syria. Uh, while I think that we can understand what's happening, there are reasons, there are faces for victims and for the responsible of, of war crimes. And what is needed is to look into the map of Syria to see what kind of solution is possible, realistic, and at the same time to look at the foreign actors who are involved in the Syrian conflicts and who are all uh, pushing for their own agendas, which is something that is not unique. Uh, this happens in most conflicts where uh, the foreign actors do have different priorities and try to impose them uh, within the local scene. So uh, what I will just start by reminding you of is we can today, after more than six years of the beginning of the Syrian revolution that turned into an armed conflict and then into a war, full-scale war, we can look at seven summers that have been always turning points in this conflict. And it's not a coincidence. Probably those who are into military science know always that in summer there are uh, developments uh, more possible than in other uh, seasons. Uh, plus the dynamic of the conflict, we're moving each year into a new phase, bringing new actors, changing sometimes the actors themselves, mutations in the society, the impact of violence. Uh, many things happened, allowing us to say that uh, the first summer was the summer of the militarization of the revolution, the beginning of the armed struggle. Uh, before that, and for six months, 
the uprising was more an uprising of sit-ins and demonstrations, uh, breaking the wall of silence, uh, trying to bring back memories, uh, to uh, break some walls of fears. So following the series of Arab revolutions, it was the same case in Syria, but of course in a different configuration and within a different context. However, due to the uh, brutality of the repression by the regime, due to the fact that many uh, Syrian revolutionaries started thinking of an armed struggle as the only way of ending with the regime, due sometimes to promises probably from the outside about the possibility of overthrowing the regime if there are a coordinated effort inside plus outside, the revolution turned into an armed struggle as of the first summer following its beginning. So uh, August, September, we have the formation of the first units of the Free Syrian Army, defectors, uh, plus the repression will get even uh, worse after that, and the beginning of the conflict. Summer 2, July, August 2012, the two battles of Damascus and Aleppo, urban uh, centers uh, became the scenes of, of fights, of clashes, after most of those clashes were in rural areas or in uh, suburbs of, of large cities. In Damascus, the opposition failed uh, militarily, while in Aleppo, uh, it controlled uh, almost half of the city. And this is also the summer where the uh, Assad regime started using its air force, plus the ballistic missiles, which was uh, an important uh, development because also it showed that there is a kind of tolerance uh, when it comes to the quality of weapons uh, that are used in the conflict. But this is also the summer of Hezbollah's involvement, the Lebanese Shiite party uh, getting involved in the Syrian conflict. In August, in fact, there was the first official funeral of a fighter of, from Hezbollah who died in Syria. So uh, it appeared as well that Iran is mobilizing troops uh, to support the regime. And this is the summer where the first jihadis started to appear uh, in northern Syria and uh, most of the borders uh, were not anymore controlled by the regime. Some came from Iraq. Some were already in Syria because they were before manipulated by the regime and sent to Iraq. And some others started traveling from Europe and from elsewhere uh, and uh, across the Turkish borders inside Syria. But we're not yet into the Islamic State in Syria and in, in Iraq or uh, Iraq and Syria or Daesh. This will happen a bit later. Summer 3 is the terrible chemical uh, massacre in the Ghouta of Damascus on the 21st of August that showed uh, that there are no red lines when it comes to the conflict. You all remember that President Obama uh, mentioned that there's only one red line in Syria, which is the chemical weapon, that uh, it meant indirectly for a regime that is used to violence, uh, that this means other means are accepted or uh, would not violate the red line, but the chemical weapon uh, will not be tolerated. However, it was tolerated because following the August 2013 uh, massacre, no measures were taken except disarming the regime from part of its uh, chemical stock due to the U.S.-Russian agreement. And once again, the consequences of that were that many considered that there is a kind of impunity uh, not a kind, in fact, a full impunity, uh, and that other tools, other means now can be used. Uh, the barrel bombs will, will start appearing just after that, uh, more and more missile, more and more destruction of urban centers. So this agreement uh, was a kind of also an invitation to continue uh, the war. This is at least my interpretation. And uh, the concept of giving back the weapon that was used in a crime and then avoiding or escaping any kind of punishment or any kind of measure uh, was by itself a very pervert concept in, in international relations. But the regime managed surviving that. And 
I think this was one reason also why the uh, Daesh or the Islamic State uh, will start rising in Syria and not only in Iraq. After that uh, massacre, it was already uh, established in some areas in Raqqa, Deir Zur, and in the, the periphery of the country. As of April 2013, Baghdadi announced it. But after this summer, we will see uh, many uh, members leaving some factions or joining the Islamic State and coming from other countries. This was a turning point that we should always remember. Summer 4 is the uh, rise of Daesh. They controlled large areas in both Syria and Iraq, and this is the beginning of the U.S. military intervention against Daesh uh, in uh, Syria and Iraq. But this is also the rise of the popular mobilization or the Shiite uh, militia in Iraq. Uh, some of them were already in Syria. Others will arrive in Syria. And for many, whether on the Shia side or on the Sunni jihadi side, the borders between Syria and Iraq were raised temporarily or uh, the, the movement on those borders uh, became important. Summer 5 is the Russian intervention. In between, Assad lost lots of areas, Idlib in the north, uh, large parts of Dara'a in the south. There were lots of pressure on the regime, even with the presence of the Hezbollah uh, and the Iranian-sponsored militias, the, the Hashd al-Shaabi of Iraq. Uh, the Assad was losing territory, and Assad himself, in a press conference, mentioned that he's lacking the human resources to continue the war on all fronts. And this is related as well to the demography of Syria, to the sectarian demography that the regime was uh, working on, was, was adopting as, as an approach in this conflict, especially the Alawite uh, demography. So it appeared that the regime needed a new support, and the Russians will offer that support, not only because they wanted to save him, of course they wanted to save him, but also Russia was returning to the international scene after Ukraine in its confrontation with the West, uh, pretending that what happened in Libya uh, after the UN resolution uh, was also a lie uh, since they were not supposed to remove Gaddafi while they did it, and that was their condition for many reasons. And for the old alliance between the Assad father regime and the Soviet Union, for the presence of a military base, base in Syria on the coast and an airport after that, for different reasons, Plus, uh, Syria is the seventh client in the uh, weapon industry uh, when it comes to the uh, Russian market. And Russia lost already two important markets, Iraq at the time, because Iraq later will buy some Russian weapons, and Libya. So for many reasons, Russia intervened. And since the Russian intervention, the balance of power shifted, and it will be extremely difficult now to, to change it again. I think the Russians imposed a balance of power and saved the regime uh, militarily. Summer 6 is the beginning of the Aleppo uh, battle, which is a kind of a consequence of that Russian intervention. Uh, the idea is uh, for the Russians that the regime controls all urban important centers in the country uh, so that it will have also the majority of the population under the full control. Uh, this, this is what some in France, uh, bringing back some terminology from the French mandate, in fact, called the uh, la Syrie utile, or the uh, useful Syria, as if the rest is inutile or is, is not useful. Uh, so the idea was to control the whole West, plus the line from Dara to Damascus, to Homs, Hama, Aleppo, so all important cities, and then the West, the, the uh, Syrian coast, and probably to try to seize other regions later, which is what happened uh, since that time. And finally, the last summer 
is the final assault on Daesh uh, by the Kurdish militias supported by the Americans in the north and by the uh, Hezbollah Iranian militias and what remain of the Assad regime supported by the Russian uh, in the desert uh, towards uh, Derizur. So seven uh, different summers changed each time the conflict and brought different actors uh, with terrible consequences, uh, statistically speaking, uh, not to talk about the territorial fragmentation that I will show you the, the map of November 10, the last one showing the, the control of each uh, party in Syria. Uh, we always forget that Syria is now an occupied country, legally speaking. You have uh, Russian occupation, Iranian occupation. Iran is building now a military basis. Russia already has two military bases, uh, Lebanese, Hezbollah, Iraqi, Afghani, Pakistani, on the uh, regime side, plus you have Turkish occupation in, in uh, uh, the north, uh, we'll show you on the map, an old Israeli occupation of the Golan Heights, in addition to what we might also call an American occupation, uh, but still is not as massive as the other ones. Uh, in Tanf, you just show it on, on the map, on the Iraqi, uh, Jordanian, Syrian border, but also with special forces uh, that are deployed in the north and that were fighting with the uh, Kurdish militia. Now, when it comes to the destruction and the demographic changes, uh, this is a very important question that I will uh, try to uh, explain, explain a little bit later. Just to give you an idea, statistically, Syria estimations, uh, we're talking about a population of 23 million. 55% uh, of them today are displaced, 13 million internally displaced, uh, sorry, 13 million are uh, displaced, 7 million internally displaced, and 6 million are displaced to neighboring countries, but also to Europe and to other places. So more than half of the population uh, does not live at home. You have a death also. The estimates are very high. Uh, the problem is documentation. It's true that Syria is the most documented conflict, but it is not the best uh, documented conflict. There are lots of problems in the documentation. However, estimations in most reports uh, are about half a million people killed, including more than 200,000 civilians, and, uh, more than, uh, and the, the others are, of course, uh, fighters on all sides, and more than 100,000 went missing. Some figures might reach in some reports 200,000, but at least 100,000 are documented and known uh, by name. They went missing, and that's another big problem when it comes to uh, justice and to possible reconciliation in the future. Uh, now, we know who killed whom in Syria. This question that is always asked or, or is always present in media, uh, it's uh, well documented because when you have uh, a bombing of Idlib, we know who is bombing Idlib. When Dara'a is being bombed, we know who is bombing it. When the Ghouta of Damascus is being under siege and under bombardment, we know who is doing that. When Daesh does bomb areas that are under Kurdish control, we also know who's responsible. So there are lots of documents when it comes to the death toll, when it comes to the places where people were killed, uh, the time in which they were killed, the uh, party that was bombing the area in which they were killed, allowing many centers, including this Syrian network for human rights. Uh, it's not the Syrian observatory that is based in London. It's the Syrian network for human rights, which is a network of activists and, uh, and, and lawyers and researchers, mainly in Syria, but with uh, regional offices as well between Beirut uh, and Doha and, and other places, they have documented 212,000 uh, civilians killed up to September, I think, uh, 2017. So many were added in Raqqa and in Deir Zur in recent months. Uh, among them, 90% 
were killed by the Assad regime, 2.46% uh, by the Russian forces, 1.99% by Daesh uh, and al-Nusra, 1.88% uh, by the opposition, and 1.04% by the international coalition, 0.36% by the Kurdish militias, while 1.67% by unknown or by other parties. So we see the responsibilities, 90% uh, plus is on the regime side because of the, of course, the, the firepower, uh, the air force, and because of the policy of destruction that I will try to, uh, to, to describe or to, to present in a while. Disappearances, we have also similar figures, uh, more than 90% on the regime side. All other groups also do have civilians who are kidnapped, but uh, uh, the figures are, uh, are different. And uh, probably many of you heard of the uh, Cesar uh, report or of the photographer from the military police of the regime who defected and brought with him more than 50,000 cliché, more than 50,000 uh, photos of more than 7,000 bodies. There were uh, at the beginning figures talking about 11,000, but later forensic experts uh, did identify at least 7,000 bodies of uh, detaini detainees in the regime's jails who were killed under torture or uh, famine or diseases. And you can imagine the parents of those who disappeared, who went through all the pictures to see whether they would rec recognize their children or not. Uh, I know many of them in Beirut, and some did find the children, some others did not. So this is one of the most uh, important questions that unfortunately is not on the agenda of Geneva, of negotiations, which is the liberation of all civilians who are detained by all parties in Syria. There is no UN resolution about it, while there are UN resolutions about other questions that I will uh, mention. Uh, but this is one of the most important uh, issues, in my opinion, for the coming years, probably, if uh, they are still alive. Because according to uh, Amnesty International, many of them, at least 15,000, uh, were killed in the last few years just in the Saidnaya uh, prison uh, near Damascus. And there are proofs of that, and there are lots of uh, reports and documents about their names and about their families. Now, for the map of Syria, this is the map of November 10. It, will show, it shows uh, the fragmentation of the territory. You have in green the areas that the opposition continues to control. And when I say opposition, we're talking about the Free Syrian Army. We're talking about some of the uh, uh, tribal uh, army in the south, and we're talking about Islamist groups that are non-jihadists. And just a brief dis distinction between jihadists and Islamists, they might both have the same ideology, but the jihadists are not concerned with a territorial identity. They would never consider that their national cause in Syria is their cause. While the Islamists would consider that they are fighting for an Islamic Syria, but they do recognize the territory on which they fight. They are not concerned with going and fighting in Mali. Uh, so Jaish al-Islam in the Ghouta is not concerned with a fight outside the area that it controls. Ahrar Sham moved from a jihadi to a non-jihadi movement by recognizing the uh, uh, national struggle for an Islamic Syria probably, but not for an Islamic Jihad elsewhere. While Al-Qaeda or Daesh are into this logic of fighting wherever the conditions of Jihad uh, gather and wherever Muslims are under attack as they pretend. So Idlib is an area where al-Nusra and the opposition have uh, a certain control. They share the control uh, with lots of tensions. Yesterday there were fights between 
Nusra and uh, Zinki, which is a group that came from Aleppo after Aleppo uh, was taken by the regime. Before that, there were fights between Ahrar Shan and the Nusra. And now the Turkish army is being present in this Idlib area. And probably their approach is to avoid a confrontation with the Nusra and work on a division within the Nusra between two tendencies. One is led by uh, Julani himself and the Mhaisini. Mhaisini is a Saudi guy in the Nusra who uh, consider that we should not confront the Turkish. It will be a suicide. Let's try to find an, uh, a kind of compromise with them. And another group led mainly by a few Egyptian and Jordanian uh, ulama or, or Islamic scholars in al-Nusra who are with a confrontation and consider that this will block the Turks uh, and not encourage them to continue. Now there is another area, uh, you can see it, that this is an area where the Turkish army in between the two uh, yellow parts. Now this is an area where the Turkish army within opposition groups control and the Turkish incursion that happened uh, in 2016 uh, aimed at separating Afrin, which is in yellow here to the, uh, to the east, a Kurdish enclave, from two other areas that the Kurdish militias control, which are Kobani and Al Jazeera. Okay, so the idea was not to allow for a Kurdish territorial continuity in this north on the uh, Turkish border. Uh, so it is under the control of the Turks and of a few groups of the opposition. The red part in the map is the area that the regime controls today. Uh, more than 50%, while the opposition is now at less than 14%. The regime, before the Russian intervention, had 18% of the territory. Today it, had, it has more than 50%, except that a large part of this 50% is desert, is not uh, populated. Uh, and this is where Daesh used to uh, control uh, areas before. Daesh is in gray, so it's mainly now to the uh, east of the country, to the Iraqi border, and it has a small enclave here, as well, just on the border of this blue area that is the Golan Heights, occupied by Israel since 67. Uh, Daesh has a presence here, indirect one, through the army of Khaled al-Walid, which is a federation of two groups, al-Muthanna and uh, Shuhada al-Yarmouk, who decided to uh, follow Daesh, and they are uh, in regular clashes with many of the opposition groups in the area, including a Nusra that has a presence and uh, is in uh, regular uh, clashes with them. If you look at the, the, the south here, Jordan plays the most important role, as Turkey is playing an important role in parts of the north, because in the other side, uh, where the Kurdish militias are, it's much more the American political umbrella that is managing the fight against Daesh. While Jordan in, in the south has lots of considerations, uh, security, uh, refugees, they also agreed with the Israelis on not allowing Hezbollah and the Iranian militias to I mean to approach the Golan uh, border, the, the, the occupied zone in Syria. But also in return, they imposed on the opposition not to attack the regime or to try to progress uh, towards Damascus as they were doing until uh, May 2015, uh, just a few months before the Russian intervention. And so there is an important question in the south. And this area that you see here is around the military basis of the U.S. Army, that is Tanf, that also recently had lots of negotiations. While the idea was to create an army of tribal opposed Syrians to the regime so that they will fight Daesh and will move from there to Bukamal and to Mayadeen and then to Deir Zur, the Iranians, and this is the new actor that I'm, I'm talking about, the Iranians are very much concerned by the control of two borders, the Lebanese-Syrian borders and the Iraqi-Syrian borders. Not only to have this continuity uh, from Tehran to Baghdad 
to Damascus, to Beirut, but also uh, to uh, uh, not to allow any Sunni, if you want, fighters continuity between the Qa'im Ramadi on the Iraqi side and uh, the uh, Syrian desert on the other. So the Iranian and Hezbollah and, and, and the allies of the regime did progress finally, avoided going through Tanf and continued to their Zur uh, to Bukamal where they are now uh, fighting Daesh uh, and uh, the, the, the new theater of, of clashes and of new uh, probably fights will be this area of Derzur. Now the Kurdish area is becoming very large area, 27% approximately of the surface of Syria, so much more than the uh, regions that uh, have a majority of Kurdish population, and that will create also problems. It is already creating tensions with lots of Arab tribes or Arab uh, cities and villages, and many villages were displaced by the Kurdish militias. Plus, there is a problem that I will mention later related to the property of land, where many records proving the property of land were burned on purpose in order to make the issue uh, uh, an issue of, of prob probable new, new struggles or, or new tensions so that also land can be confiscated in a political project that is still uh, not really clear, or at least it might have lots of problems with those who are sponsoring it now, I mean the, the Americans, after what happened to the Kurdish project in Iraq recently. So this map of, of fragmentation, um, one can see really difficultly how, how it will change. Uh, because even the areas that are in green for the opposition and, and seem to be isolated, uh, besieged, there are Russian projects for a de-escalation that should protect them, except that today and yesterday there are tens of people who were killed in the Ghouta in aerial bombardment, and there were also military clashes there. So it's not uh, respected. But uh, for many other places, including the area between Homs and Hama and the area of Idlib and the south, one cannot see Iran and the regime and the Russians seizing it back. At the same time, the war against Daesh will continue, but it's not true that Daesh will uh, fully disappear when it will lose all the territory it used to have. Uh, in Iraq in 2009, uh, they lost the battle against a tribal configuration that was fighting them. But then suicide bombings, uh, lots of attacks here and there can destabilize uh, a country if there is no political solution and if uh, there is further humiliation to large categories of the population. So it will not mean after the defeat of Daesh that will happen, that Daesh will disappear. It might have uh, mutations and different forms of action in Syria. Plus the issue of the Kurdish area is still an issue of uh, debates. Uh, Turkey has its uh, vetoes. Uh, the US know the limits as well. Uh, the Kurds uh, might accept a certain form of federal government, but now the Syrian regime uh, is saying that it's opposed to it. The opposition uh, does not have a clear uh, option or, or choices when it comes to this Kurdish question, so it might be a question of also new tensions uh, and, and conflicts. Now, many reports were published and issued in the last few years about war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, from the Independent International Commission of Inquiry uh, of the uh, United Nations uh, to the UN Human Rights Commission to Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, MSF or Médecins Sans Frontières, the Violation Documentation Center, which is probably the most uh, credible Syrian effort to document violations, um, except that its figures are uh, lower than most figures that are used because they only put figures of those that they have verified themselves, their death certificates, or that they have been in contact with their families, so they have uh, less. Uh, the Syrian Network for Human Rights that I mentioned, 
And they all gathered proofs and documented the chemical attacks. Recently, the most recent one is Khan Shikhun, the aerial and land bombardments of, on civilians and civilian facilities, including hospitals, nurseries, schools, uh, bakeries, etc. Torture, rape, and ex- uh, executions in detention centers, plus the uh, report that was released on Monday by uh, Amnesty International called Surrender or Starve. Surrender or Starve is a slogan that the regime has been using since 2013. Uh, in Arabic, uh, phonetically, uh, it's al-ju'a uh, or ruku'a. So uh, surrender or starve. This has been written on walls in Damascus, between Damascus and the ghuta that is under uh, the siege. And uh, doing that, this is a crime against humanity by devastating bombing and, and uh, imposing sieges on hundreds of thousands of civilians. This is a new proof also of crime against humanity, plus the forced displacement of populations. Now, for the forced displacement of populations, usually there were agreements imposed on uh, some villages or small cities that were besieged, and finally the fighters defending them know that they have no chance to continue. So they accept uh, a ceasefire with the condition that they leave the city with all their families. So it it becomes just uh, an empty, destroyed city, And then the property, there are legislations already on many places close to the Lebanese border or around Damascus where property has been transferred to copies of the regime or to companies or to the state with the project of rebuilding. And many of them were already informal places that were completely destroyed and that the regime pretends it's going to reorganize the urban space so it will have projects uh, for those areas, meaning that their population will never return. Uh, meaning that this is a demographic change and this is pushing a population with a specific profile. Most of them are originally rural, poor Sunnis who came uh, to live around cities and most of them will not return to the places uh, that they were uh, displaced from. So this will have an impact on the demography of Syria. But I'm not sure, and there are no reports, about what some uh, are uh, mentioning regularly on Shia uh, colonization or on uh, Shia coming from Re- Lebanon or Iraq and being uh, replacing the Sunni population in these areas. I think this is more like uh, a myth. Uh, even if there might be Iraqi refugees in Syria who already lived in Syria after 2003 and who were mainly in the Sayyida Zainab area between Damascus and the Ghutas, and due to the destructions there, they might have moved to areas that Hezbollah or uh, their own militias recently controlled. But to bring Shia from Iraq or from Lebanon, I don't think this is something that is, I mean, uh, practical or beneficial uh, for Hezbollah and for uh, the uh, Iraqi uh, Shia militias. But anyway, what is sure is this kind of demographic change uh, where Sunni rural population that were living around cities have been pushed to different areas, either outside Syria, many are in fact in the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, or to, uh, to Ramtha and then from there to, to areas in Jordan, or to Turkey, southern Turkey. Many of them try to leave Turkey by taking the sea, and we know the, the terrible uh, tragedies in the sea. And some were internally displaced and are today in Idlib, uh, that is becoming uh, more and more a large, I don't want to say concentration camp, it's too strong, but almost an area of of a very dense population uh, that is uh, bombed and can be 
if there is an escalation, can be bombed even uh, more violently by, by the Russians and the regime and other actors in the conflict. Now, when it comes to this uh, destruction and, and forced displacement, our colleague uh, Leila Vignal and uh, Syrian researcher Jihad Yazji published two interesting documents on the destructions as a policy that the regime adopted. And even if the opposition also, when bombing areas that the regime controls, does destructions and, and uh, harm civilians, but the firepower uh, uh, and, and the aerial bombardment is, of course, uncomparable. So most of the destructions are from the regime to other areas that is not under its control and became a policy by itself, exactly like violence was a, was a policy from the beginning. Uh, someone mentioned today that in Deir Zur, uh, I think you did, uh, Jim, in Deir Zur, they did not always fire on demonstrators. The regime from day one did use sectarian, regional, and class issues in using violence. Uh, they, they did not open fire on demonstrators inside the city of Aleppo, inside Damascus, in some areas in Deir Zur and Raqqa, for tribal reasons there, while in the city to avoid clashes with the bourgeoisie of the cities. Uh, they did not open fire on Kurdish demonstrations. There were huge demonstrations in Kamshli and in Amuda and other places. They used to assassinate those who organized demonstrations or to beat and torture some of them, but do, they did not open fire uh, on, on the crowds in the streets. The same in a city like Salamiye, which is a city of Ismaili community, where also they were beating people and assassinating some of them, but not killing them randomly. While in all areas of popular classes, lower classes, of refugees, the Yarmouk camp, uh, of Hajar al-Aswad in Damascus, uh, the Ghouta, rural Sunni area, then the violence was killing and was targeting tens of demonstrators daily. Then with the uh, uh, bombing, almost the same logic, except in Aleppo because they wanted to seize back the city. But look at Homs. They completely destroyed Baba Amr and popular neighborhood in Homs while trying to preserve other places. Uh, uh, Aleppo, as I said, is an exception. Hama did not have uh, internal or, or urban uh, fights. Dara'a is divided and uh, almost destroyed. Now there, Zor and Raqqa were uh, destroyed, and Raqqa was destroyed sometimes without a military need by the international coalition. After defeating Daesh, the bombing of Raqqa killed hundreds of civilians and destroyed the city. This is on the side of the Russians and the international coalition. But for the regime, there was always a will to, as, as Jihad Yazji call it, destruct to reconstruct. They are thinking of staying in power and of having contracts for reconstruction and for the property of land. And there are already lots of legislations since 2012 transferring land in many areas uh, to uh, the state or uh, considering that projects will happen there. And this is definitely a sectarian objective uh, in order to clear some area from its Sunni population uh, by pushing them out. And just I remind you of uh, two statements, official ones, on his site, on his website, Assad website. In November 1, 2016, he said that the Syria's social fabric is much better today than before the war. Uh, with six million outside the country, most of them, once again, Sunni, poor, rural population. Uh, he's talking about a much better social fabric. And he said that to a Lebanese newspaper in Arabic, Nasij al-Ijtima'i Suri, Tahassana Ba'd al-Harb. Uh, which is, uh, I mean, uh, by definition, if you are teaching fascism, you talk about these kind of, of, uh, of arguments. Uh, he said also in August 20, 2017, we earned a healthier, more homogeneous society in a literal sense. This homogeneity is the basis for national unity, homogeneity in beliefs, 
ideology, traditions, custom, perceptions, and outlook. And maybe his advisor told him that add something on diversity, so he would add, despite the fact that they are diverse and uh, uh, multifaceted. So these are official, I mean, statements showing that this is a policy uh, that was adopted uh, by the regime. And as I said, it followed also the uh, line of some sectarian violence. You can see the result. Uh, you know this picture, probably, because it made the... the this is al camp, or what remained of al camp. Today, it completely disappeared. And you know what the people are waiting for? This is the UN queue to get some water and milk and, and uh, medicines. Uh, this is just before the full destruction of Al-Yarmouk, and now Al-Yarmouk does not exist anymore. All the population of Al-Yarmouk, which is a refugee camp, Palestinian refugee camp, it's the largest Palestinian refugee camp in the, in the Middle East, but half of its population was not Palestinian. Now, with time, many lower middle class and lower uh, classes from different areas in Syria moved to Al-Yarmouk uh, because it's cheaper, it's just the gate of Damascus, and it's a dynamic society, so many were, were living there. Today, Al-Yarmouk does not exist anymore, n nor the region around Al-Yarmouk. Uh, many small towns and informal constructions uh, were completely destroyed. This is, I think, a picture that uh, summarizes uh, most what I've said. You know this? So you have on the right side, Al-Abbasiyin, Sahat Al-Abbasiyin, which is uh, one of the very large uh, public places in Damascus. You have Al-Amawiyin and Al-Abbasiyin. And you see that it's well organized. You don't see the impact of the war on its buildings. And just in front of it, this is the neighborhood of Jobar. Jobar, uh, that is the, the door, or this is the gate of the Ghouta. Uh, Jobar is a neighborhood that until today is controlled by the opposition, except that they live underground. Uh, there is nothing uh, underground, and most of the war takes place underground between Hezbollah and the opposition. Uh, they have both the same technique, and Hezbollah accuses Hamas of bringing that technique to the opposition, and that Hezbollah brought it to Hamas. So they use exactly the same technique, and you can see on YouTubes how they fight in the tunnels and how the tunnels explode uh, in the face of each other. But the, the underground of Jobar that was completely destroyed, uh, and there are lots of also videos uh, distributed by the Russian uh, media center, uh, with uh, drones filming Jobar and the areas around Jobar. Uh, it, it was completely destroyed. And the first uh, uh, documented chemical weapon attack was in Jobar. It was documented by two French journalists uh, from Le Monde uh, who brought samples from the ground, from the hair of the fighters, uh, from the blood and from the urine, and they proved that there were chemical attacks. That was four months before the Ghouta August uh, chemical attack. But once again, uh, nothing happened at the time. And uh, the problem of, uh, not the problem, I mean what is ugly in this picture is not only the destruction on this western part of it, is what it means as if it's the eastern part that destroyed the western one. And when it comes to a society uh, that is today with lots of divisions, cleavage, blood, victimization, plus a feeling that the whole world left it to its miserable destiny. This means that also reconciliation between Jobar and Al-Abbasiyin is, is difficult. You can look at it also from class issue because Al-Abbasiyin is a middle class. Jobar was a very poor neighborhood. You can look at, at it from the uh, traditional cleavage between urban and rural. So this is the city and these are those rural migrants who came and who live in the city. Many divisions within the Syrian society uh, are incarnated in this uh, picture with the terrible destruction. And of course, who will reconstruct Jobar and for whom? Uh, to bring the same people who lived there? 
to, to give them or to offer them new houses after their houses were destroyed. Most the of the population of Jobar is either besieged in the Ghouta or left to Jordan when this was possible or to Beirut or uh, they are in Damascus itself because remember that most of the uh, internal displaced they move from one area to the other and usually they move without the husband or the father or the, the brother so that he will not be arrested or taken to the military service. So you have also this question of uh, man staying sometimes uh, either they are killed or detained or fighting or they, they, they try to stay and to survive while the families are on the other side. So this is a picture, in my opinion, that summarizes a large part of the uh, meanings of, of this conflict from the regime side. Now, after this, and we can, of course, discuss uh, much more, but after this, is peace today possible and is reconstruction possible? There is a kind of uh, media propaganda pretending that out of realism, we should accept what happened and we should deal with the Assad regime because we have boycotted the regime for six years. So we need now to normalize. And anyway, he's not the only criminal. And this is one argument that we hear. Uh, the Russians are also saying that Syria will be reconstructed. The war will be over soon. So you Europeans come and reconstruct and you will have investments. You will have the priority because Russia that contributed to the destruction does not have enough probably possibilities to reconstruct, to invest. When the Europeans say no, we need to talk about the political transition before the reconstruction, they threaten that they will bring the Indians, the Chinese, the Indonesians, the Malaysians and others and will offer them most of the uh, projects. Except that Syria, who's going to reconstruct and to invest in a country where resources are anyway scarce? It's true that Derzur has, has oil, it's true that there is in the West uh, in the east, sorry, Gaza. Some are saying that there are lots of Gaza also in the Mediterranean Sea, in front of the Syrian, Lebanese, Israeli, Palestinian coasts. But to come and invest and pay in Syria, nothing is guaranteed when there is no political solution. And anyway, the Gaza and the oil sector are almost under the control of the Russians. They have uh, already signed many agreements. The Iranians are also active in that. So there are no important revenues that might come from Syria. And reconstruction in that sense, even out of realism, and we can forget about ethics for a while, is not something suitable or important. Uh, and reconstructing what and for whom, once again the question, what will happen to the refugees? Will they immediately return without a political solution? Some of them might. Some of them who are in a terrible situation in Lebanon, who are just waiting for visas to Europe, and those visas will never come because you know more what's happening in Europe now. Uh, they might try to go to Turkey when it does not work. They would probably find ways to return. But these are part of the refugees. They are not the majority. The majority will not return without guarantees, without a political solution, without a serious reconstruction. And again, the policy of the reconstruction will be crucial when it comes to this return of the refugees. Plus, realism, it is not true that Assad his regime won the war. It is mainly Russia and Iran that won the war or are winning the war. So a regime that is winning due to a foreign occupation is not a stable regime. It cannot be a stable regime. It will remain, the situation will remain uh, very fragile, volatile. It is mainly because of Russian and Iranian direct support that the balance of power shifted and it will be difficult to change it, as I said, once again. But this does not mean that this regime would be stable as long as the international community will normalize with it and say that, anyway, this is out of realism. It is there, 
mainly because of foreign occupation. And foreign occupation will always bring frustrations, humiliation, and uh, many questions that will lead to uprisings, to clashes, and to instability on the uh, short run, but also on the long run. In addition to that, the Middle East has suffered for decades now from this question of impunity. Starting from my country of origin, Lebanon, where a civil war happened, and we deal with it as if it was an earthquake, as if there are no killers and no victims. And the same in Syria today. Some people are dealing with Syria, especially in, in some academic circles, that we should not take a position. Yeah. Of course, we should not be, I mean, militant and twisting reality in order to prove a certain thing. But we cannot remain silent and neutral when there are half a million people killed in a non-natural disaster, in a disaster that a regime is responsible of, that foreign actors are responsible of, that some other local actors are responsible. So, I mean, part of the question is also related to a certain form of justice. We might not have justice, full justice, and this is extremely difficult to reach, and it will require lots of mechanisms that are not there yet. But to talk about what's happening in Syria and about, about a possible reconciliation, normalization, without mentioning anything about crimes against humanity, about uh, war crimes, about the necessity of having maybe a tribunal, special one for Syria, like the one for Yugoslavia, uh, like the one that happened uh, after uh, in Liberia, in Sierra Leone. There are many cases where we can think of something similar that will bring to justice those who are responsible of crimes against humanity. Today, there is a reality related to the veto right of Russia, uh, related to the fact that the Syrian government never joined the Roma Treaty that allows the uh, International uh, Criminal Court to seize the, the dossier or the case of a country even without a UN Security Council approval. So there is a problem on that side, but there are always possibilities. And already there are some uh, Syrian individuals who have uh, dual nationalities who have started procedures in Germany, in Spain, in France, and in the United States against specific uh, officials and officers in the Syrian regime. So there are some uh, beginnings, let's say, but this is, of course, not enough. And in a region like the Middle East, with many conflicts, impunity has been by itself a kind of an invitation uh, for more crimes, for frustrations, for nihilism. And, and terrorism cannot be understood without taking that into consideration. This is not enough to explain terrorism. There are many other reasons. But part of it is this feeling of impunity for many criminals uh, and this question of double standards in dealing with the region. So I think the most important thing for peace and reconstruction to be possible is to go back to what has been forgotten now due to the Russian effort to marginalize it, the Geneva process. That Geneva process had a very important declaration since June 2012, talking about a political transition. No one is talking anymore about that political transition, about a government that would be a government of uh, transition. The Russians are using the term a government of reconciliation, meaning that will bring everyone together. That will include, of course, uh, the, the regime and Assad and his family. Uh, while the issue of transition is moving from one phase uh, to, to, to the other. So I think this is a key for, for the solution. And there are UN resolutions like the 2139 in 2014 about the sieges to lifting the sieges of many areas uh, that are today and continue to be under the siege mainly of the regime, but there are also two localities in Idlib that are under the, the siege of the opposition. Uh, however, there the airplanes of the regime can always, I mean, send and, and bring food and other uh, necessities, while when it comes to the Ghouta, when it comes to the area between Homs and Hama, 
there is nothing that is entering except when it comes to smuggling, where on both sides there are smugglers who make profits, of course, from the uh, misery of those who are uh, besieged. The liberation of the prisoners and detainees, it is only now a human rights agenda, while in political negotiations it has not been on the table. There should be pressure to put it on the table. And if we are to talk about reconstruction, this reconstruction should be conditioned, conditioned with the political transition, but also conditioned with the way it will be conducted so that it will not exclude uh, the victims who were displaced once and uh, who will not be uh, able to return to the places where uh, they have lived. I will end here. I thank you for your attention, and I hope we can discuss more uh, anything that you consider uh, relevant. Thank you again.